I want to tell you a story uh, before I get started here about uh, Indonesia. I, I told you at one point, I gave you a little clip of when we, what happened when we were over in Indonesia, and I told you that we'd explain more later on. So I, what I decided is I'm just going to give little snippets here and there instead of taking a, a, a big chunk of time. Um, you know, this year when uh, Jay, Jay and I go over every year, and this, was, this trip was just flowing uh, in God's presence, it worked really well, and um, and I said before, part of that was just having Paul there leading worship was really helpful. Um, but one of the things that was really neat was um, Jay's son, Jay McCumber's son, um, and, and most of you know who Jay is. He's spoken here a number of times. He's uh, from Cornerstone out of Lebanon, and his son, who's a high school kid, uh, 16-year-old, uh, was with us on this trip, and he was helping out with the vacation Bible school portion of it. Well, after the conference is done, we were staying in this place uh, on this cliff, and it was a thatched, it had thatched roofs, and there was a bunch of places along the side of this cliff, and one of them caught on fire. Um, and in, a, in the course of maybe like a half hour, probably, that thing burnt to almost nothing, right? Um, eight houses, you know, got caught on fire and just lit up, and we're like, um, which way is the wind going to blow here? You know, and it was going slowly toward us, fast the other way. And so I, I had a bum foot, and I'm sitting there with ice on my foot, elevated foot. Paul and Jay are on a bucket brigade trying to put the fires out on this place, and Trey, his, Jay's son, is I- with me, and Jay's like, you're not allowed to get near this fire. And so I'm sitting there with, it's just Trey and I in this place, and I'm like, what should we do, man? And he said, this is cool, 16-year-old, he, you know, he's just kind of like typical teenage kid, whatever, you know, he's an uh, athlete and uh, likes girls, go figure, and you know, that sort of, just an average kid, and um, he was like, I don't know, we should probably pray, and I was like, that's a good idea, do you want to do that? He's like, sure, so he starts praying, I'm like, I wonder what he's going to pray for, and he's like, God, we need rain. And that's basically what he prays for. And you could see this storm that was way, way, way far away over there. And so he was like, man, that's pretty far for that thing to come. And so he's, he's as praying that God would send rain. Not that much longer, we're on the cliff. From behind the cliff, big storm clouds roll in. Boom, dump. Heaviest rain of our time there, you know. And uh, uh, Trey's like, Whoa, whoa. You know, when, when we take steps of faith to, to do whatever the Lord's calling us to, um, you don't need to travel to Indonesia to pray. Um, you, you don't need to do that. All you have to do is trust the Lord in any given moment. For when we imagine, what would God want in this moment? And then we stand with him in agreement and ask for that. It's amazing how we see God move. And an awesome thing to watch a teenage kid experience that from his own prayer. But it's an awesome, ti- awesome thing anytime any of us experience God answering our prayers. Amen? It's a really cool thing. That's why I love the fact that we're, we're reading that book right now, that there's a bunch of people reading Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. That is a, a huge encouragement in faith. Um, all right. So um, as we kick off this new series, I want to ask you to think with me for a second about a moment in your life when you felt really, really free, like very free, just free. Maybe it was that 
you had a load of money, you had a good paying job, and you could pay your bills and do whatever you wanted, and you had good vacation time, and you could travel. Maybe it was that time when uh, you had that heavy weight on you because of that task you had or that responsibility you had, and you finally accomplished it, and it was over, and you're like, I can breathe again. Uh, maybe you were stationed overseas, and you came back home, and you just felt like, wow, or whatever it was. Maybe when you went and got your first apartment and moved out of mom and dad's place, or when you went off to college or whatever, and uh, whatever it is where you're like, man, I'm kind of like independent, free. What is, what is that thing for you? That moment, maybe it was when there was a really toxic relationship that you were in that ended and you were like, wow, that's painful, but I wonder, um, I wonder what life can be like without that or something. Who knows what that freedom is, has been for you. I have this really, really vivid memory, and if you read the, the blurb kind of leading up to this series, I, I talked a little bit about it. I was driving on Bridge Street one day. And I was headed from Spring City into Royersford, and I had just gotten my license, and I'm driving down the road, and I see Burger King coming. And this is what flashes into my mind. How many times have I passed by this Burger King in the car with my parents wanting a burger, and I didn't even bother asking because it's not dinner time. It's not lunch time. They have plans for dinner and lunch. We're headed somewhere doing something. But I'm like, I'm in this car by myself, and, there, and I even have a couple bucks in my pocket. There is nothing stopping me from going through the drive-thru and eating a double cheeseburger while I'm driving down the road or whatever it was. And I was like, I'm going to do that. I was so cool and like crazy cool. And so I, you know, pulling in, pull up to the drive-thru, order the burger. Sure enough, pull back onto the road and I'm sitting there eating a burger. And I'm like, man, this is life at its best. You know what I mean? This is it right here. I'm killing it. And uh, so that, that, for me, that's this picture of freedom. I have many other moments in my life that I could describe where I've, I've felt free. And you have those moments too. Maybe the sun's shining, a, a windows down, whatever, you know, those moments when you feel free. Jesus, with every fiber of his being, what gives him more joy than maybe anything else other than just simply making his dad happy. The only other thing that that even comes close to giving that much joy to Jesus is helping us feel that. He loves to set us free. He loves it. That's who he is. At his core is he is a freedom fighter who comes to set his children free. That's what he's about. That's what he's all about. That's what the gospel's about. That's what Jesus is about. That's what his heart's about. And any time that things get a little twisted in our minds around Jesus, and we think he's the guy who wants to cramp us down and hurt our style, we have a wrong picture of who Jesus is. We're reading the wrong text. And this letter, of all other letters, helps us understand what that freedom actually is. So, um, I don't know if this story is about you, Kristen, but I read this story about a preschool teacher who uh, was talking to her kids. Fourth of July was coming up, and, uh, and she wanted to talk to kids about what freedom actually is, you know, and, and, and patriotism. So, she says to the, to the class, she's like, it is a really awesome thing for us to be in America. And one of the coolest things about being in America is that all of us are free. And this little boy comes from the back, and he walks up to her, and he has his hands on his hips, and he says, I'm not free, I'm four. 
<laughs> Damien, where are you, man? I need you on the drum. <laughs> Sometimes we don't fully get what being free actually is. You know, we misunderstand what freedom is. And because we misunderstand it, we can't capitalize on what freedom actually is. Sometimes we add meaning to what freedom is. Sometimes we take away meaning from what freedom is. And the whole point of this gospel here, or the whole point rather of this letter, this epistle from Paul to the churches in Galatia is this, is that they have a misunderstanding of what freedom's about. They have a misunderstanding of what God's about. They have a misunderstanding of what grace is about. They have misunderstood. They have been led astray. And Paul on this point, gets as fierce as we have ever seen Paul. In the entire New Testament, we never see Paul as close to completely and totally losing his temper as he does in this moment here because it's this big of a deal that they understand freedom the way God states freedom. And he is vicious on this point. And we'll see it as the series goes on. I mean, so much that he goes after Peter, like, bam, Peter. Like, get back in your place, you know? He's going after Peter. He's going after teachers. He's, like, he's fit to be tied. And he feels entirely justified in his anger. Because he is protecting God's people from lies and misunderstandings about freedom because he wants them to be truly and entirely free by God's grace. That's what he wants. And so he's going to spend this letter going after defining God's grace, going after explaining what God's all about in freedom. And, um, you know, this is understood uh, by many people. This, this uh, letter has been called the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. Uh, this, is, this is the declaration right here. This is the foundational document, perhaps, in the entire council of Scripture. This is the definitional doctrine on freedom and grace. And that Paul, in his young years, this is early on in his ministry, he's probably gone through one missionary journey at this point, where he's established churches like Antioch and, uh, and Bithynia, and he's... Now he's hearing about what's happening to the seeds of the gospel that he's planted there. And after all that time invested with them, and after the beauty of what the gospel is, he's hearing that there are other teachings that are going on that are leading them away from freedom and leading them back into a place where they're being locked into a false religion. And fire comes out of his nose, man. He is like, not okay with this. Not okay with it. There's a couple times where we see Jesus angry like this. Uh, one of them we talked about on Easter Sunday. Do you remember that? Talked about when he was standing in front of Lazarus' tomb, and all of a sudden he's overwhelmed with emotion, and the word that was used was what happens to a horse when they get angry and they start stamping their foot and snorting out their nose. You're like, you do not want to mess with the horse when they're mad like that, right? And it's, that's the picture of what Jesus was feeling when he was standing in front of this grave and he's hearing everyone mourn and he's getting angry and he's sad and he's angry and he's like, this is not okay. Death is not okay. It's not okay and he's angry. 
And in that same sense, we see him then when he's in the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry when he looks around at the temple and he's taking tables and he's whipping them around and he's throwing money. And we're like, dude, that's not even your money. But it is his money because this is my house. And you made a disaster of my father's house. And I don't care how you think you earned that money. It all comes by the grace of God. And in this place is the place where you give that money to the Lord, not hoard it for yourself. And so he throws the stuff all over and he's angry. He's viciously angry. Anger can be a beautiful thing when it's from God. But it is a super dangerous thing that we would love to use for ourselves. And we do love to use for ourselves. And in this situation, Paul is in deep, deep anger, but it is not for himself. Because Paul is free, and he's living in freedom. And it's because of that freedom that he is able to stand in confrontation and go head-to-head in order to save and bless those who he loves so that they won't be held captive by false theology. And so in love, he allows that anger to stir and speaks truth. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, it is, it is a mother hen who's like, let's say a mother bear, you know, who's like, you will not get my cubs. And he reals, uh, realizes that there is an evil one who is prowling around trying to speak false thoughts in their mind that will revert them to a way of life that isn't okay. And so he is like a mama bear who's vicious. You will not get my kids. That's the picture of Paul in this thing. Uh, About 1,500 years later, there's a guy who writes a commentary on Galatians, on this book. And his commentary is every bit as fierce as the book itself. And as a matter of fact, in that moment, this man who is so convicted about the church having been led astray and having no longer understood freedom and grace... He starts to, as a religious figure himself, speak up and say, we are not living by grace anymore. And he writes this commentary on the book of Galatians. And when he writes this commentary, what he says about, the, about himself in, in his understanding of the book of Galatians, he says, I pray that by the Lord's grace, my forehead will be more strong than every other man's forehead, more hard than every other man's forehead. He's like, I want to be stubborn beyond belief on this point of grace and freedom. And, he's like, and then he goes on, and this will be maybe the tip-off if you know anything about the story of who this is if you haven't figured it out yet. What he says is this guy is so mad about the fact that the religious uh, structures of the day, that the teachers of the day, they keep teaching, taking a teaching from uh, this other letter from Jesus' brother, James, that says faith without works is dead. And they take this phrase and they make it mean some things that it didn't mean. And it has people not feeling free and it added to grace. And it changed the way freedom was understood because it was a false understanding of that passage. And he gets so mad about the way they're using that text from James that there's this quote where he says, man, I wish that I could just throw Jimmy in the stove. Talking about James, you know. Uh, because, and, and he's saying, I want to take the book of James, and at some point in this moment, I f- wish I could just throw it in the stove. 
Because what happens to us at times is our hermeneutic and our understanding of Scripture, when we get led astray, what happens is, is that we're seeing these passages and not seeing these passages. We're understanding this theology, but we're not embracing the heart of the one who's speaking to us. And when we start nuancing Scripture and taking bits and pieces and trying to put it all together and it gets us to a place where we're locked down and things are heavy and we're not in a living dynamic relationship with God, then there's something that's actually wrong with our theology. And even though it's coming from verses in the Scripture, it's not being understood through the Spirit illuminating the full counsel of Scripture and the full voice of God. We're getting like two notes of God's voice instead of the full chord because God speaks in chorus like the voice of mighty rushing waters. And when we're missing parts of the tones of his voice, we start to only hear this tone and not this tone and we don't understand it. And that's why about 500 years ago, there was this guy named Martin Luther who was freaking out because he's like, there is nothing free right now. Nothing is free. We are not living from grace. We're not living in this place like everything is just a, you know, we're fighting for every inch and and the people who are in charge are just, you know, and using the scriptures to do it. And he's like, something's got to change. And he reads his Bible and he reads from Romans and he reads from Ephesians and he reads from Galatians. And he's like, it's grace. It's all about God's grace. about God's grace and we watch him when he's writing his commentary have that same kind of level of passion and we watch the church change and the church the church did not by any means get perfect at the Protestant Reformation as a matter of fact some things got a lot worse we are way more separated and divided than we've ever been splintered than we've ever been There's just splinters everywhere. It used to all be under one head. The beauty of that is that the exploitation that was taking place isn't available anywhere near as much as it was back then, you know? But there's lots of things that haven't gone right. And right after the Reformation, the next thing that happens is, is that the Reformers started to persecute other people. (laughs) It just keeps going, you know? But the beauty is, is that there is a, a... an understanding of Scripture that we had lost sight of. That we as the church had lost sight of. You know, St. Francis and St. Augustine, they hadn't lost sight of it. But by the time we got to the 1500s, by and large, the church had lost sight of it. And we now have inherited this wonderful, wonderful doctrine of we are saved by grace through faith. And that we understand now that I have entrance into a relationship with God, restoration into a relationship with God, singularly because Christ makes it happen. And that's the bottom line of the Christian faith. That's the bottom line, is that it's on him, not on me. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. And we are tempted. I am tempted. All of us are tempted at times in our life, subtly tempted to think and believe differently than that. It's not that we're tempted to have false doctrine. None of us wants false doctrine. None of us wants to be a false teacher. I don't think. I mean, if there's people who want to be a false teacher, it's very, very few, you know? False teaching and false doctrine don't happen on purpose. At least not from humans, usually. 
It happens because we are buying into lies that are being spoken by the enemy subtly into our minds and we begin to shift and lose focus on the core of the gospel. And what it is that Paul's doing in this text is he is going hard after the core of the gospel. And he'll do whatever it takes to make sure that we understand the core of the gospel. So, where to go from here? I, I realized today that uh, there is only one boundary about how long this takes, and it's that clock back there. Because this could go and just go and go and go. So I will look at the clock, I promise you that. Um, and, uh, and that'll be the boundary. I want to read this passage again. This is the only thing we're doing today is the first five verses. So Christina read it for us at the beginning. I'm going to ask us to read it again. And I am going to ask us, please, in honor of God's word, to just stand as we read this. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I was really expecting a better amen than that. You guys can have a seat. Grace to you. Grace to you for not speaking amen louder than that. Um, so this is the introduction to the, to the letter. And there's three basic parts of all the the introductions to most letters at this stage in history, uh, especially formal letters, is there's three basic things. Who's this coming from? Who's it going to? And kind of the warm greeting. Here's how you know. I, I would imagine that w- if you were at the Nicene Council, which uh, if you don't know how the Bible formed, there's all these letters flying around that were just letters, you know? People writing down the story of Jesus, people writing letters to churches, and at one point they have to figure out, like, Holy Spirit has been in this and he's been inspiring stuff, but which of this stuff is the Bible? Which of this stuff isn't the Bible? Like, what is the canon? What is the voice of God? And they have to say, like, we came through this moment where Jesus established a new covenant and we have sacred scriptures that document that and help us understand that. How do we know which ones are and which ones aren't? So there's the council in Nicaea, along with a bunch of other councils where these men, mostly men, every now and then, uh, They'd find a good way to slide a, a, a lady in there and help them out. Praise the Lord, if you slid in there. You know, um, and, and they would sit around and they would find ways to understand what of this was the inspired word of God. And one of the ways that you can figure that out is when you look at a simple little greeting, like, hi, this is so-and-so, talking to so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. You know, and you look and you're able to peel that back and may say, my goodness, the layers that are in a simple greeting. There's like multiple layers of things going on that unpack the rest of the letter, that unpack uh, the counsel of God, that reveal the gospel, that give us all this background. And when you start seeing scripture, one of the things that stands out to us, I have uh, the, the full set of, uh, of essentially the, the church father's historical writing before and after the council. And it's all the extra biblical stuff. It's all the stuff that didn't make it. And uh, 
I, I periodically read through some of that just to hear like what are the other letters, what was going on and everything. And they're awesome and they're written very similar to this. So when you're reading them, you realize, man, this sounds like scripture. The difference is, is man, I am telling you that when I pray and I read what's in this word versus when I pray and read what's in those things, there are layers in this thing that just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And you're like, whoa. And I know I can read books by a good Christian author and realize, huh, I might have to stop and meditate on that. But it is nothing, nothing like the voice of God that's coming through the scripture. And I say all that because even though there's just these three parts to the greeting of like, hi, I'm so-and-so and this is to so-and-so, we understand and learn so much about it from this, uh, this particular introduction. So I want uh, to cover that with the remainder of our time. Uh, first of all, this letter is from who? Paul. And that is indisputable. Like, this letter, everybody knows, even the critic, like the, the hard critics know. This is actually the hand of the Apostle Paul writing this letter to the churches in Galatia. Like, Paul. Apostle Paul. Yeah, and, and anybody who doesn't remember who was Paul before he was Paul? Saul. Right. There's a Greek name and there's a Hebrew name. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name. Okay? And so he took a Greek name after encountering Christ pretty cool thing. Kind of let go of his Hebrew name and took on this Greek name. In other words, already a picture of him stepping into a whole other level of grace and into new covenant. His identity will no longer be rooted in the old Jewish faith. His identity, who he is now, is named completely differently by those who he's going to go and serve. And so Paul, we know, um, is a, a great picture. One of the reasons why um, it's so important for us to understand Paul when writing this letter is because Paul is accustomed to what it means to be a false teacher. Paul is very well aware of what it feels like to be the guy on the other side of the equation who doesn't understand Christ and is coming hard, driving hard to teach what they believe to be truth and yet is not truth. And he was so passionate and so zealous that we know, of course, he's persecuting the church. And most likely Paul was doing that out of ignorance and out of quasi good motivation. And when I say quasi-good motivation, he thought he was being a good guy. He was all about trying to be a good guy. Which isn't, you know, anytime that our motivation is trying to be a good guy or trying to be a good girl, that's a selfish motivation. That's not necessarily pursuit of God. That's just trying to be good. But he was trying to be good. He thought he was doing the right thing, you know. And so uh, Paul's trying to be a good guy. So he understands what it's like to be on the other side of the equation. These people who are teaching this stuff against these, in these churches in Galatia, he understands he's been there. He's been rescued from that, okay? And then he writes, this is really interesting. Oh, it's also not just from Paul. Who else is it from? All the brothers with him. And this word brothers, you said people. Does your uh, scripture actually say people? That's a... Brethren, that, that word um, is the word that's used for siblings. That's what it means. Um, most technically, it would, when it says brothers, that's because in, it, it would say, I, who was I with the other day? Um, I forget where I was the other day, but I said, hey guys, and I was talking to a mixed group, you know, and I was like, oh, and ladies, and they're like, you can call us guys. What are you? And I'm like, oh, shoot. What? I, don't, I never know when it's offensive or not. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and this is what that word is. It's that kind of generic word that has gender attached to it. 
like it's brothers, but it's actually like siblings. That's what it means. And so this is Paul saying, my crew. That's what he's saying, my crew. All right. And he's, and Paul has a crew, doesn't he? Every time he's writing a letter, he's talking about so-and-so's with me, and I'm going to be sending so-and-so to you, and when so-and-so comes to visit me, can you send them this stuff with me? And he has this crew. And again, there's this awesome picture in the New Testament that Christian leaders did not stand alone. They didn't stand alone. That leadership wasn't a thing that happens in, in, from like a singular person who's calling the shots other than Jesus. And Jesus has people, he scatters his gifts among men and women and then calls them together to function and to lead. And Paul's this awesome picture of that. Where everywhere he goes, he's got his crew with him. And you rarely hear him in any space alone. Even when he's in prison, he often has somebody hanging out with him in prison. You know, it's an amazing thing. And uh, one of the damages, one of the struggles of ever since the Protestant Reformation is that in the last 500 years, church leaders have never been more alone than they are. Because there's a church on every corner and everyone's kind of doing their own little thing and they feel more isolated. You know how passionate I am about this. You know that I spend my life trying to go after changing that right now. That I believe that the, the power of seeing the full counsel of Scripture work among us and the full voice of God has to do with the fact that his voice is in this church and this church and in this pastor and that pastor. And the more we come together in that, the more we're going to see of the fullness of God. And Paul is walking in that. He's walking in that. And there's got to be a crew. The fact that last week DJ was here speaking, a couple weeks ago Justin was here speaking, and you heard the word of God come from those guys. They're over at our house regularly where Jen and I are mentoring them and their wife. Regularly. That's a, a regular part of what we do, you know? And we speak into their lives. And, and, and that's what, uh, Ryan's here with us. I'm stoked to be with Ryan. We, we worship together and pray together on a monthly basis in Delco where the pastors of that area get together and they care for each other and pray for each other. And it's an awesome thing. And God is working on that level. And that's an important piece of the kingdom of God. You guys at, at Parker Ford are helping make that a big reality. That's a big uh, mission of this church. All right, so that's who it's from, Paul and his crew. Paul and his crew, okay, to the churches in Galatia. The churches in Galatia. Now, interesting, how many churches are there? Oh, such a tricky question. Yeah, there is one body, right? So we know that the universal church, there is only one church. However, there is one universal church that is expressed in different what? Geographical locations. The congregations are formed around geography in the scripture. That's it. The only, the only nuance in the universal church in Scripture is geography. So there's Antioch and there's Bithynia. Both are part of a wider area called Galatia. So the, the reason that we need to understand the difference between this and the church of Ephesus, when Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, he's writing to a singular congregation in a single city. The area of Galatia is like basically the country of Turkey. It's huge, okay? And there's all these towns all over. And so it would be essentially like saying, Paul, to the churches of Pennsylvania. Okay, you, can't, you don't have just one in Pennsylvania. You're like, okay, yeah, so you got Reading and you got Pottstown, you got Lancaster and you got, you know, whatever. You know, and so the, the churches of, of those areas, there are those who are gathering together. There weren't divisions. There weren't churches on every corner and every block. There was the region. 
Okay, but he, what's interesting is, is that he can send a letter that deals with one topic that affects that entire region because they were that interconnected that what was affecting one of them was affecting all of them. Because the same teachers were going back and forth and speaking in all these different areas to all those different congregations. And what's more is, is that there was this understanding that the, the, the warfare that they wrestle against would get deeply embedded in a culture. And if you lived in that culture, you would be affected. So if you go to a church in Southern California versus a church in the Northeast, they're going to look very different because of the cultures that they exist in. If you go to a church in China versus a church in Argentina, they're going to look very different. You know, and what Paul understands is that in this area of Galatia, there is a thing going on. And there is this thing that Christians in that region are struggling with, and the enemies work in this angle through the culture, okay? And so that's what he's going after with this thing. And there's these specific teachers traveling around that area who were going after it. Now, he has one specific blessing to them that he speaks. He says, grace to you. And peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace. There's this church in Pottstown, Presbyterian church that was planted that meets over at Westmont called Grace and Peace Church. Great name for a church. Great name for a church. And the, the reason is because it frames this, these beautiful central elements of our faith and of God's blessing to us. What is grace? Name it. Unmerited favor? Yeah. So uh, what does that mean? <laughs> Put that even in layman's terms. Yeah, yeah. So we don't deserve it. It's all the stuff that we don't deserve, the goodness of God. And maybe I, I always loved how Josh always talked about grace. Um, Josh Bitework, he talks about, I talk about him like he's a, he's not dead. As a matter of fact, I'm going to see him this summer. We're going to annual conference uh, for our denomination, and it's in uh, Michigan. Yeah, so um, he always talked about grace when he was here as that means that God likes you when he shouldn't like you. <laughs> you know, he just likes you. He chooses to like you even though you don't deserve to be liked, you know, and that's what it is. Like, he's just toward you. His face is toward you. He likes you. And, and that's the thing about grace is grace is all that comes from God, all the blessing and the goodness and the, the God's smile toward us. All of that is God's grace. And it's all the stuff that when we were running the other direction, he turned around and smiled at us. You know, he turned us around and smiled at us and embraced us. And that's what he does all the time. God is constantly toward us. God is constantly for us. There is never a moment in our lives when God doesn't like us and God is not for us. You know that? When we are violently against God and we are running the other direction, we are given the beautiful picture of the prodigal son and a father just waiting, waiting and running toward him. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is it. None of this thing is about what we are accomplishing. All of it is about the fact that we have a relentless love from God that is just all about us, and we cannot quiet the fire of his soul for us, no matter what we do. We don't have the ability to, we cannot quench the flame of his desire for us. Can't do it. That's his grace toward us, and it comes in so many different ways. I mean, we've talked about it regularly that his grace comes every breath I take, I don't deserve. Therefore, it's grace. And the fullness of grace is seen on the cross. Of course, we know. 
not only grace to us, but also peace. And what is peace all about? Peace is not just the absence of war. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is harmony, things working, being at rest, things being made right, being in the right order. Because of God's grace, we then have peace. The peace that passes all understanding. And so we now, what he's saying, and this is what's important to hear from Paul, that when he's saying grace and peace to you, this isn't a nice greeting. Although, these two words, one of them is a Greek word and one is a Hebrew word. The, the Hebrew is when he says grace to you. Uh, sorry, grace to you is the Greek word. Peace is, that's him like shalom. Shalom, peace to you. The Hebrews would say peace to each other. The Greeks would say grace to you. He takes both of them and then fills them up so they're pregnant with meaning over the fact that this is God's grace to you in order that you can live in peace with one another. That you can have peace. When he speaks this, this is an important point that I want you to hear. Paul's not just, like, this isn't just a, a cute way to open the letter. This isn't like, hey, what's up? What this is, is Paul speaking and declaring from his mouth. If you watch through the scriptures, you see the power of the tongue. How much blessing actually means when we bless someone, which means how we use our tongue in the power of the tongue is the authority to bless and to curse. What we do with our tongue has the power to bring life to another person, that we can impart God's grace and peace to another person. When we look at that person and we say, grace to you, Mel. God's grace to you. God's grace to you. And when we look at someone in the eye and we say, Sandy, God's peace to you. And when we do that, there is something that should go from our mouth through their eyes, into their spirit. And in the same way that in Romans 8, his spirit communicates with our spirit. We are spiritual beings. And what comes out of our mouth, it says, out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. And what's in my heart? If my heart is love and blessing toward you, then what comes out of my mouth is the impartation of that love from my heart to speak life into you. And we have the power to do that. We are given the power of the tongue to speak God's words to one another and to speak life. It doesn't have to be just a cheesy thing. It can be like literally, I have the ability to speak life into you. God's given me that power. All right, so grace and peace to you. That frames it. Now there's three things that are the the theme of this book as we move forward. Here's what the theme of the book is going to be. And that uh, this this is where we end is naming these three things. Theme of the book is all about what we've said, the, the whole thing is they need to live in the grace of God, in the freedom that comes from being in the grace of God. That's the, his main concern. This is where he's going all mama bear on him, okay? There's two things that he needs to establish in order to prove his point about that. One is he needs to prove that he has the right to speak it. So you see, the first part of this book is actually about him defending himself and his own authority to speak into their lives. And that's why it says here, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God our Father. You know what an apostle is? It's an ambassador. 
It's a sent one who's given the authority of God into a specific situation or into a specific group of people or to carry a specific message and is given the authority of God. It's not just the mouthpiece of God. That would be a prophet. It's the one who carries God's leadership anointing for this task. And some apostles are called to the Gentiles and some were called to the Jews. Some were called to this region. Some were called to carry this message. So there's different ways that works out. But what Paul is saying is, I am an apostle for you guys. I am called toward you guys. You know what Paul's greatest anointing was for? You know what the greatest thing he accomplished in the kingdom of God was? What is it? Anybody know? What's that? Writing the Bible. He's an apostle to us right now. He wrote so much of the New Testament. The, one of the biggest parts of what he was anointed to do was to be our apostle. I mean, Jesus is the apostle, but he was called, sent, commissioned by Jesus to write this. We are reading the very words of Paul the apostle right now. I mean, like Deb should let her phone go woo again, you know? <laughs> it's like he's here writing it to us, you know? And what's more is he says, I was not sent by men. I wasn't even sent for men, and my power doesn't come through men. I was sent by God the Father and by Jesus Christ, who was resurrected. And the reason he says he's resurrected is because he's like, it's not some historical hero who sent me. He's alive in the heavenly realms, sitting at the right hand of God, and he gives me this assignment right now. And he's essentially saying, I'm coming with the ring of Christ's authority. You gotta listen to what I'm saying because I've been given the ring of the living Savior to come with authority and speak this into your life. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for you and for him. I'm doing it by him, through him, because he loves you and he's alive. And that same Jesus who was alive then is alive now. And he still wants to speak to us. And he's still in the room. And the words of his apostles still speak to us. And it's for us. He establishes, he wants to establish that point in this book, and we'll go after that, so that he can establish that there's only one true gospel. That was the third point, is what is the nature of the gospel? So that he can say, if that's the gospel, and if you've received it, what does it mean to live in that gospel? And that's what he wants for us. That's what Paul wants for us. That's what Jesus, the living Jesus, wants for us, is to live in the gospel. So, you thought of that thing at the beginning of the message? What was that, th that moment where you felt free? You know? At worship planning team on Wednesday, we were looking at slides. This slide's a little compressed. It doesn't look quite as pretty because we're still dealing with our old projector. The other one's getting fixed. It'll be back at some point. But we, we landed on this one. But all the other slides we were looking at had pictures of either someone on a, on a hilltop by themselves like, like this or like jumping through the air with balloons, freedom. And there was this one that was awesome. There was these two uh, bowls full of water. One was full of goldfish. Maybe you've seen this before. And there was a goldfish that was airborne, jumping out of the one, headed toward the other, and it was empty. The other one was empty. He was getting away from all the goldfish. Freedom! You know? 
What's interesting is how we so easily think freedom is about getting away, being independent, having enough money that I can do what I want to do, you know, being away from my parents who were, you know, parents and, you know, (laughs) being able to be away from the the workplace that has all the demands on it and when I can just be free and do what I want to do, you know, and that's kind of the picture oftentimes that we feel around freedom is getting away from it all. Grace and peace to you. The grace is not to get away. The grace is to live at peace with God, with one another. Grace and peace to you. What if freedom isn't about getting away from the pressures? What if freedom is about living above the pressures, about pressing back against the pressures, about overcoming the pressures, about crushing the pressures, about taking every one of those pressures and saying, thank you, you just led me closer to Christ and closer to my brother and sister. Grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. These are your words. These are your words and they are good. And for all who will receive them, they will not return void. So God, we praise you and we honor you and we glorify you. You are God. Jesus, you are God. Jesus, you, you are God with us. You are Emmanuel. You are here with us. And you have sent your words spoken to us. And you have distributed your gifts among us. And you have set us free. And we honor you. We praise you. We bless you. And we thank you. I ask now, Jesus, that as we go further in understanding this book, this letter that was written a couple thousand years ago, that it would come so alive to each one of us. And that, God, we at Parker Ford Church would be people who understand and recognize that we need to fiercely protect this freedom the way that Paul was willing to. That we will not live chained. You did not die so that we would live chained lives. You died so that we can live abundant lives. God, we ask that by your grace, not by our efforts, by your grace, we invite you to bring us into the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a true Christian, one who walks in freedom. 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 Freedom to us. Freedom. In the name of Jesus, amen.